All right, so we're going to do chapter four. I know uh, last week I got a lot of complaints about the homework, um, a lot of reading, get over it, um, got it up. This week should have been easier. We're taking shorter chunks now. We did two, two chapters last week, and uh, we're taking smaller chunks. We're actually doing a whole chapter, but they're shorter chapters. We're doing four this week. We'll cover five next week, and you'll see why these two chapters kind of go together. But I, I want to just real briefly recap where we were last week uh, when we went through uh, chapters two and three, the letters to the seven churches. One of the things I tried to point out was that uh, what jumped out at me in those two chapters is how Jesus introduced himself to each and every church with a different description of himself. And he reached back into chapter one in John's vision when John looked and he saw the one uh, like the son of man walking among the golden candlesticks. And then he described what he saw. His reaction to what he saw was he fell on his face as if dead. He basically fainted. Jesus raised him up, and then he described his own character to John. I am the first and the last. Uh, and in every one of these seven churches, he introduces himself, and just real briefly, he says to the first church, him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. For whatever reason, and the reason I think is pretty clearly, that church needed to hear this message about who Jesus is because of what they were wrestling with, what they were struggling with. He tells the second church, I'm the first and the last. I'm the one who died and came back to life, back to life and I live forevermore. Uh, why did they need that? Because of what they were going through. They had taken their eyes off of that aspect of his character. He tells the third church, him who has the sharp two-edged sword. This would have been my least favorite description, just because of it's a kind of a scary description. But this church needed to know that he is the protector. He's the judge, but he's also the justifier. He's going to protect them with the word of his mouth. He's going to deal with the problem in their church if they don't. He tells the fourth church, the son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. He can see into their fellowship and he knows what's going on and he's going to deal with it like a judge, like a king. That's what the burnished bronze feet has to do with. So once again, all seven churches get a different introduction. The fifth church, him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, he holds them in his hands. He's given them the spirit of God. He's given them leadership in their church. And he's given them the capacity to spot false leadership, which is one of the problems going on. He tells the next church, the holy one, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Remember, he told uh, John, I have the keys of death and Hades. And this is carrying off that idea that I have all control. I'm God. I control what's going to happen. And he's encouraging this church with that in mind. And then finally, the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. That church needed to hear that message. And so what we got out of this is that every one of these churches needed to understand the character of Christ so that they could succeed in whatever they were going through. And that's true of us today. When we take our eyes off of him, we get overwhelmed by the world, what's going on in the world. So Jesus introduces himself. So you have in chapter one, John's vision of Jesus. You have in chapters two and three, Jesus revealing himself to these churches and telling them who he is. Now in chapter four, John's going to get another vision and it's going to get more intense as we move along. 
and more intense for John as he sees these things. And so it opens up in chapter four, the very first thing that he writes is, after this, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And so you have to ask, okay, after what? Well, after chapters one, two, and three, everything that he's seen, the vision of Jesus, and then the message to the seven churches. And, and we kind of flew past these, but I do think it's important for us to go back and remember what did he tell these individual churches? What was his message to these churches? Well, to the first one, he says, remember where you came from, where you've fallen from, where you were and how you've descended from there, and then repent. He says this numerous times to numerous of the seven churches, that idea of repent, not just a, an about face, that's how we normally define repent. Repentance really has to do with a change of your mind. Because if you don't change your mind, you're not gonna change your behavior. And, and when Jesus came and John the Baptist came and they told the people to repent for the kingdom is at hand, they were basically saying, change the way you think about God, about salvation, about righteousness, about everything. And he's telling this church, repent, come back to me. You've, you've gotten your eyes off of me. He tells the second church, be faithful unto death. Why? Because he's telling them that you're going to probably suffer death as a part of your persecution. Be faithful all the way to death. And then he tells them, I'll give you the crown of life. You don't need to worry about what happens if you die because I've got it taken care of. He tells the third church, again, repent. If not, I'm gonna come and war against you with that sword. If you won't deal with what's going on in your church, I will. And that should be kind of a wake-up call to every guy in this room that, that God will deal with a sin in his church. He will not let it continue. And we know later on that he's threatened at least one of the churches, I'll, I will remove your lampstand. I'll take away your effectiveness. You may still exist and you may still have a congregation, but you will accomplish nothing for the kingdom of God. He tells the next church, hold fast what you have until I come. Don't let go. Don't give in. Don't give up. Hold on. The next one, remember then what you received and heard, keep it and repent. Again, change your mind. Go back to what you heard. Don't walk away from the gospel. You know, it's interesting in the church today how easy it is for us to hear the gospel, accept the gospel, follow the plan of the gospel, and then somewhere down the road, get away from the gospel. And it all becomes about what I do and what I accomplish and all that I have to do to keep God happy with me. And I think Jesus would say, repent, change your mind. You've gotten off kilter. You've forgotten what the gospel really is then hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. In every single case, all seven churches, his emphasis at the end is what? The end. You're going to get there. You're going to make it. I have a plan for you. You will succeed at this. So I put in your notes this little chart that I put together just to help me understand how all these chapters fit together. In chapter one, John sees the vision of Christ. Okay, he's, he sees him walking among the lampstands. He describes him. He's impacted by him. He faints because of him. And then he hears this description of Jesus' character from Jesus' lips himself. Then you have in John's vision in chapter four, which we're going to look at today, of God, he sees God Almighty. And in between, sandwiched in between, are two and three, which is Jesus' revelation of himself to the churches. 
And, and we're going to see next week, as we look at chapter five, John's going to get a vision of Christ again, but a different kind of vision. So it's all about God. It's all about Christ. It's all about John seeing the power of God, the power of his son. And what's critical about that is it's setting up chapter six through 22, which is all about what? God in his might, his power, his glory, and his majesty bringing judgment on a world who refuses to acknowledge him. So what John is being given and what we're being given through John's eyes is this glimpse of Jesus in his glory and his majesty. We're getting a glimpse of God in his power, sovereignty, so that we might be encouraged, just like the seven churches were, that I've got this taken care of. I'm the first and the last. I'm the beginning. I'm the creator of all things. I, I know what I'm doing. Trust me. Hold on. Don't give up. Be faithful to the end. So chapter four is, is not a long chapter, and, and it opens up with this. After this, I looked. He sees a door standing open, and the first voice, the voice he heard at the beginning, the voice of Jesus Christ, calls him up to heaven, which had to be kind of a weird sensation for John. And it says, come up here and I will show you what must, must take place after this. And so he's invited into heaven. How did he get there? What did it look like? I'm not sure. All we know is that he is somehow transported into heaven and he's told by Jesus, by invitation, come up here and I'm going to show you what's going to happen after this. And that brings us back to our outline for the entire book, chapter one, verse 19, and we've looked at it several times. Chapter one is the things you have seen. Chapters two and three are the things that are, the things that are going on during the first century, into the first century, those seven churches, and now the things that are gonna take place after this. So what does he say? Come up here, come with me, come into heaven, and I am going to show you what's gonna take place after this, in the future. Things that have yet to take place. So at once I was in the spirit. Here he is in the spirit again. What does that look like? I don't know. How did it happen? Not sure. But he's somehow transported in the spirit and he's standing in heaven. And he says, behold, look at this. I see something. A throne stood in heaven and with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne and on each side of the throne are four living creatures full of eyes front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second, seven live, living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, 
to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So here we are, guys. We're stepping into the deep end. Get your floaties on, because it's, it's going to get heavy. It's going to get deep. He's seeing things now that are mind-blowing. And you can understand why he's using this kind of weird descriptions of the things he's seeing. We don't know exactly what he saw. We don't have an idea of what this looked like, but he's trying to tell us, give us an idea of what he saw through these words of description. And I think all throughout the book, he's all, almost always at a loss for words. How do, how do, I, how do I describe this? And, and so it's, it becomes all this imagery that sometimes overwhelms us, sometimes, sometimes intrigues us too much. You know, we almost get sucked into the imagery too much. And so what I want to do this morning is kind of downplay the imagery. I know you want to know what everything means and you want to know what every image represents and you're going to be highly disappointed. Okay. Cause I don't know. I had a guy come up on Tuesday night after I said that and he said, well, what do we pay you the big bucks for? <laughs> you know, you should know we pay you to know. Well, I don't know. So here's, here's the imagery. Just recap of what he saw. He sees a throne. Now, it doesn't take a genius to figure out what a throne stands for, right? Power, king, rule, authority. He sees Jasper and Carnelian. Why? What? I don't know. But he sees Jasper and Carnelian. He sees a rainbow with the appearance of an emerald. What does that mean? Well, let's see if we can find out. 24 thrones. Why 24 thrones? Not really sure. Who are the 24 elders? We're going to take a look at that. They're wearing white garments. They have on golden crowns. There's lightning and thunder. This one I get. Okay. Anytime you see lightning and thunder in the Bible, it's not good news. Okay. It, it, you may love thunderstorms, but lightning and thunder, if you go back to Sinai, when God appeared on top of the mountain, it scared the snot out of those people. I mean, they, they didn't want anything to do with the God that was on top of that mountain. And, and so all throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament, you see lightning and thunder as a symbol of judgment and power. There are seven torches of fire. And thankfully, he says, it's the sevenfold spirit. At least that one we get explained to us. And then there's a sea of glass like crystal. What is that? And then these four living creatures that are, I mean, they got eyes all around. They've got an ox and you got a lion and it's just weird. And as we're going to see, Ezekiel saw the same thing. And his description is even weirder. Well, what are all these things? Here's the problem as I see it. We make way too much out of the imagery. Is the imagery important? Yes. But it's, it's not the point. And we spend so much time trying to figure out what the imagery means that we lose sight of the main emphasis of this entire chapter. And in, in, as far as I can tell, the entire point of the chapter is the one who's sitting on that throne. Everything else is just an accentuation of the one sitting on the throne. If you go back and read it again, everything surrounds that throne. Everything points to the throne and the one seated on the throne. But if we're not careful, we end up spending all our time looking at the things around God and not at God. See, the, the point was God. And as chapter five will be, the point is Christ. That's the point of the whole book. So keep your eyes focused on God as we move through, through this. 
So what do the Jasper and Carnelian mean? What do they represent? Well, here's the problem. As you, as you translate these words, the stones aren't necessarily the same stones that we might know. I don't even know what a Carnelian is, okay? Jasper, I've heard of. Carnelian's kind of an odd duck, and it gets translated different ways in different translations. What are these stones? We're not completely sure. And that's why I say, I don't know. And I'm not embarrassed to say that because I've read so many commentaries and I almost wanted to take every commentary and give you, give you every one of their explanations of these and none of them are the same. These are bright men. These are men far brighter than I am and they can't even agree what these things are. Lots of conjecture. We know basically that one's white and one's red and we know that from the passage further on in the book of Revelation. I had a guy write me and he said, hey, I was doing the homework and I, I did a Google search on Jasper and Carnelian and you're wrong, they're both red. I'm like, okay, I'm gonna turn to the scriptures and not Google. I don't know, I, I don't trust Google. And in the scriptures, it tells us their colors later on in the book of Revelation. One's crystalline in nature, the Jasper stone, and one which is clear or white and the other one is red. So possibly they represent his holiness and his wrath. That's a, that's a great one. John Walford, one of the greatest uh, theologians who's written on the book of Revelation, that's what he thinks they are, but not everybody agrees. Some say it's righteousness and it's his judgment. Kind of the same thing. There's also the, the, the idea that they believe that these two stones were Two of the 12 stones that were on the ephod of the high priest. If you recall, the high priest had 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel and the first stone representing the firstborn and the last stone representing the lastborn were the two, these two stones. And so the idea is that the first and the last represent everyone in between. They're all encompassing. They represent the body of Christ, the, those who believe in God. Again, if you held a gun to my head and, and said, is that right? I'd have to take the bullet because I don't know. I don't know. And I don't think it's important. It's at least not critically important because that's not the point of the passage. How about the green colored rainbow? Well, why is there a rainbow is one question. Why is it green is another question. And in both cases, I have no idea. I really don't. Here's, here's what we conjecture, the rainbow may represent God's mercy. Where do we get that from? Where else is there a rainbow associated with God and his people? Noah, right? The flood. After the flood, he destroys everybody, but Noah and his family. And then he gives him a covenant and a rainbow as a sign of his mercy, his covenant faithfulness. It perhaps and likely is tied to that but it's green in color. It's not multicolor, it's emerald in color. We don't know why it's green. The passage does not tell us, and as far as I can tell, nowhere else in the book of Revelation are we told the significance of the green rainbow. I don't know. But we do know that it is pointing to, to and surrounding the throne of God where he sits. See, what's really interesting about this passage, and one of the guys pointed that out this morning to me, is there's no description of God. You don't get a physical description. 
Remember when John saw Jesus walking among the candlesticks, he says he's got white hair. He's got a face that glows like the sun in midday. He's got feet of burnished bronze. He gave a physical description of Jesus. In this one, we get no physical description of God. What we do get is really a description of his character by all the things around him. They, they represent aspects of God, his majesty, his holiness, his glory. That's what these things are meant to represent. They're to draw you into God, who he is. And again, why is that important? Because the rest of the book, six through 22, is gonna be all about what God in his power, his glory, his majesty, his splendor, and his faithfulness is going to do on this planet. As he's promised, as he's planned, he's gonna do it. And we don't have to worry. So everything points to God. And as, as I've told you before, we're going to keep reaching back into the Old Testament because you don't understand much of the Old Testament, especially Daniel, Ezekiel, Isaiah, without the book of Revelation. So back in Ezekiel chapter one, he got a vision of God. And here's his description. There was the likeness of a throne in appearance like a sapphire. And seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance. And upward from what the appearance of his waist I saw, as it were, gleaming metal. So he sees this individual like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire. And there was brightness around him, like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain. So was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face. He has the same reaction John did when he saw Jesus, but he's seeing God Almighty. So you see these kind of a twin visions of God. John sees him. He, all he sees is the stuff happening around him. He, he sees someone on the throne, but he sees all the activity going on around him. Ezekiel sees this individual and he's blown away by the way he looks. But again, there's aspects of fire and judgment and gleaming and it, it's, it's his character. It's who he is. Well, John goes on and he says, around the throne were these 24 thrones and seated on the thrones are 24 elders. Well, who are these people? Why are there 24 thrones? Why are there 24 elders? And who are they? And again, there's so much conjecture about who these individuals are. Are they angels? Are they men? And, and so we, we got to kind of wrestle through this. And the truth is, again, we don't really know. And I know that drives some of you who are type A personalities absolutely crazy, you know, because you want to know. Well, he, he doesn't really tell us, but we can, we can kind of look at it. And here, I'm going to give you my view of it and what, what is the view of this church. The word used is presbyteros. It's a Greek word. And everywhere else in the New Testament it's used, it's used of men, leaders in the church, elders, presbyters, bishops in the church. It's never, as far as I know, it's never used of an angel. It's always referring to a man. The very word literally refers to somebody who's got gray hair and lots of wear on his tires. You know, somebody who's old, somebody who's lived a long life, made a lot of mistakes and has some wisdom to share because of his life. But in the church, it had to do with those who were typically older men, but who were leaders in the church who met the requirements found in Titus and Timothy. 
And they're, we're told they're, they're wearing white robes and golden crowns. Again, we, we have descriptions of angels, but we're never really told that they're wearing white robes. They just appear to be white. They appear to be bright and, glory, and glorious in their appearance, but they're wearing these golden crowns. Well, are, again, are they angels or are they men? In the Old Testament, it's really interesting that in the, the priesthood, there were 24 sections of elders, 24 groups within the priesthood, and each had a representative. And those 24 priests represented all the priests, and there were hundreds, if not thousands of them. So there's a tie-in, I think, to that, that there's these 24 men who are before the throne, I believe they're men, and they represent all of us as followers of God, believers in Jesus Christ. That's what I think is going on. He's seeing these men, whoever they are, and we're not told who they are, but I believe they're men seated around, seated around the throne, on thrones, and we're going to get a glimpse of what they're doing in the presence of God. We're told they're wearing white robes. That almost always means purity, holiness. They've been cleansed. They didn't bring those robes with them. They were given those robes by Christ. See, they've been purified. Angels don't need to be purified. Angels don't need to be given white robes. If you know the story in Matthew where Jesus tells the story um, of sending out the king who sent out the invitations and invited people to come to his, his son's wedding and they refused to come. So he sent out more servants and they beat those servants and they killed some of those servants. Then he sent his son and they killed his son. And, and he invites people from the highways and byways and he gives them robes to wear. He provides them with the robes to come into his presence. So I think these men represent those of us who have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ and we are now white and pure and righteous before God. And they're wearing these crowns. And this is the clincher for me that they're men because the, the kind of crown it mentions is Stephanos and it's gonna appear all throughout the book of Revelation. And it's a particular type of crown. It's a wreath that is given to a victor in a road race, a running race, like in the Olympics. It was given to a general who conquered in battle. He would get this garland that they would place in his head. It's kind of, to me, it's kind of a lame prize. You know, it's just this garland that's going to die. But in this case, it's gold. And these men are wearing these golden crowns that have been awarded to them for being victorious. Well, remember what we saw in chapter two and three, over and over again, every one of the churches, he says, to the one who conquers, to the one who conquers, to the one who conquers, to the one who conquers. And that's not telling you and I that we need to gut it up and go conquer. We've already conquered in Christ. The word is nakao, and it means to get the victory. We've already got the victory. I don't need to go out and get the victory. I need to put my faith in the victory that's already been achieved by Jesus Christ. So this idea that these 24 men are wearing these crowns that have been given to them because of the victory accomplished by Christ. And see, what's significant is what they do with it. What's their response? And they represent you and me. And, and I hope you walk away with this this morning that if these men represent you and they're standing before the throne of God and they're wearing white garments cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ, wearing golden crowns that are theirs only by virtue of what Christ has done for them, that's us. 
And, and we should respond in a like way. So here's the people of God, representative 24, surrounding the throne of God. And it's a picture of us. What do they do? The 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne. See, I believe in rewards. I think the Bible clearly teaches that there are rewards for us, but I don't make a big deal out of it because I don't think the whole purpose of you getting to heaven is to get all your rewards. And I don't think anybody's going to walk around in heaven going, hey, I got more than you do. Check this out. My crown's golder than yours. My crown's bigger than yours. There's no pride in heaven. There's no gloating in heaven, which for some of us, really? That's kind of the kind of way I live my life. No, there's no gloating. There's no pride. So what do they do? They take their crowns that have been given, provided to them by Jesus, and they give them to God the Father. Why? Because they know without him, without his son, they wouldn't have them. They, they worship him. And they say, worthy, O you, O Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. What they say is significant, guys. They say, worthy are you. Isn't it interesting that these 24 men, whoever they are, are telling God what he already knows? You think God's going, really? I'm worthy? You know, when somebody says that to me, I, man, I, I love that. But see, God doesn't need me to tell him he's worthy. It's really for my benefit. It's a reminder that my God deserves everything he gets. He deserves this crown. He deserves my presence. He deserves my bowing. He deserves it because of his axios, his worthiness. The, the Greek word means weight. God's got weight. You know, you know people like that when they walk in the room, they have weight. They kind of dominate the room. And God has weight. He's deserving of our praise. And sometimes we don't live that way. Sometimes we don't treat God that way. But what God wants John to know by virtue of this vision is that I alone am worthy of praise, me. Now, why is this important? During this period of time, at the end of the first century, there was what was called emperor worship. And it was created by the emperors. And Domitian, who was the emperor at that time, really loved emperor worship. Why? Because he was the emperor. And most of the terminology in this passage is tied to him. He would force people to claim, worthy are you, Domitian, O emperor. And you had to worship the emperor. If you didn't worship the emperor, you were persecuted. You were mistreated. And yet God is telling John, no, worthy am I. Worthy is God, not Domitian, not some man, not some thing, me. God alone is worthy of your recognition of his glory. And he's worthy of your adoration. But guys, stop and think about how few times you really give God what he's due. How few times you really worship God and praise God. Now, yeah, you come to church and you sing songs and you, you worship. And, but how many times have you come to church and they're singing a song and you go, I hate that song. Let me ask you a question. When did it become about you? 
Or maybe you come to church and, and you love Converge and Converge is full and so you have to go to the traditional service and you go, God, I can't worship in there. That music drives me crazy. When did it become about you? Or maybe you're older and you want to go to the traditional and there's no room and you, God forbid, you have to go to Converge. <laughs> and it's so stinking loud and the dark, lights are dark and... It, I can't worship like, when did it become about you? See, it's all about him and he's worthy of your adoration, whether you like the music, whether you like the room, whether you like the lyrics, it's about him. And I think that that's what God's trying to tell John. It's about me. And he goes on and says, they're saying, you created us and therefore you're worthy. If for nothing else, he created you, worship him. There's nothing else that created you. There's nothing else that should be worthy of your praise. So he says, worthy are you to receive. And this word is really fascinating to me. And I've never noticed it this way before because every time I read this, it sounds like something I'm giving to God and that's the important thing. Worthy are you to receive. I'm gonna give you stuff, God. Look at what I give you. But what's the point? The word means to take what's already yours. God is worthy to take what belongs to him. So these guys that are giving him his crowns, it's not like, hey, hey, hey I, I was the first. I, I gave my crown first. I'm, I'm bowing lower than the rest of these guys. No, they're just giving back to God what is already his. Their worship, themselves, their crowns. See, we are simply giving to God what's rightfully his, his glory, his power, his honor, as he'll go on to say, as his people made by his hand, created by God himself, we're simply giving to him what rightfully belongs to him. Our attention, our bodies, our minds, everything. And he goes on to describe three different things that he's receiving because he deserves to receive them. Glory, isn't it interesting that we're told that he receives glory from these men who are bowing down before him. Glory, where we get the word doxology, is, is something that belongs to God and to nobody else. You do, you do not deserve glory. You may get it, rarely, but you don't deserve it. God does. And so when we give him glory, we give him majesty, magnificence. We give him, see, we're not giving him that because he already has it. It's his essence. We're acknowledging it. We're recognizing that only you are glorified. Only you are majestic and magnified. Only you deserve this. And here's what I want you to think about as you walk out today is that think about all the things that you give glory that don't deserve glory. And it's going to be stuff and things and houses and cars and careers. They don't deserve glory. Only God alone deserves glory. And then honor. He says, you're worthy to receive honor. And that word is someone who deserves it by virtue of their rank and position. I'm, I'm reading through the, the biography of uh, Harry S. Truman. And uh, it's been really fascinating. And I'm at a point where it's during the Korean War. And it's not going well. And he, John MacArthur is in charge of the Korean War over in Asia. Now, he's, 
the, the, the general who accomplished so much and he was so revered and he was so uh, powerful in terms of his influence on the people. Uh, and yet he was screwing up. Things were not going well. And the president was afraid to fire him. Why? Because he had glory. He had honor. And he eventually did fire him and all hell broke, broke out. And the president's approval rating dropped to like 20% because he messed with someone with glory and honor. But see, General MacArthur has nothing over God. God deserves it. He should be revered. He's the one who we should recognize as due honor. And we should give it to him all throughout the day, all throughout our lives. And then finally, he says, you're worthy to receive power. How do I give God power? I can't give God power. He's all powerful. So what is this talking about? It's recognizing what already resides in God. He's powerful. But how many times do you doubt God's power? How many times do you go into a situation doubting that God can come through? So you're not giving him his due. You're not recognizing the power he has. I do it all the time. And it's so easy to do. But why is he being given this vision? To remind him so that he can write it down and it be a reminder to us that God is all power. He's worthy of, he's worthy to receive glory and honor and power because he's the creator of all things. Again, why is that important? Because chapter six through 22, the creator of all things who deserves glory and power and honor is going to bring his glory, power and honor to bear on this earth in an incredible way. And here's the amazing thing. We're going to see as we get further into the book that God's going to bring judgments of all kinds, plagues of all kinds. He's going to bring misery of all kinds on the earth and the people on earth will know it's the hand of God and they'll still stiff arm him. They'll still go, I don't want you. Don't want anything to do with you. And yet we're told to give him awe and reverence and glory and power and honor. Well, then you got these four living creatures. Now, I'm going to disappoint you because I'm not going to dig into these because we're going to get into them later. They come up over and over again in the book. But they're bizarre, right? Four living creatures full of eyes, front and behind. One looks like a lion. One looks like an ox. One looks like a man. One looks like an eagle. Pretty bizarre stuff. Who are they? What do they represent? It's really not clear. And we're going to dig into them as we move into the book. But what I want to remind you of and point you back to is, again, Ezekiel. Ezekiel saw the same basic thing. Listen to what he says. From the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures. This was their appearance. They had a human likeness. Each had four faces. Each of them had four wings. As for the likeness of their faces, each had a human face. The four had the face of a lion. The four had a face of an ox, an eagle. So they have four faces. They're four-faced. Well, why is his description different than John's? I don't think they are. I think what you're seeing is these four creatures are facing the throne and facing the throne are different faces. An ox, a man, a lion, an eagle. And John's over here looking from another angle. And what does he see? He sees the faces on the other side. So he just describes what he sees. And he doesn't notice that they have faces all around. 
They're weird, right? They're bizarre, right? They're full of eyes all around. There's, but this is a bizarre image. And we know from Ezekiel that he describes them as cherubim. They're heavenly beings. It says in 10.5, the cherubim mounted up. These were the living creatures I saw by the Shebar Canal. So we at least know from Ezekiel they're heavenly beings. So you got 24 men sitting on 24 thrones, and you got these four living creatures. And each one of these creatures is going to be play a part in the unveiling of the wrath of God on mankind. But this morning, rather than dig into what are they, who are they, what are they, I want to look at what are they doing, because that's the point of this chapter. What are they doing? It tells us, each of them with six wings never ceased to say day and night, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. They never ceased to say it. Now, I don't know of a job that I want in heaven, but I don't know that I want this one. It sounds a little monotonous, right? But I don't think it is. They willingly, gladly, joyfully sing Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. They're declaring the eternality of God, the glory of God, the holiness of God, the separateness of God. And they say it three times. They repeat it. Why? For emphasis. And it reminds me of Exodus chapter 15, verse 11. Here's the people of God saying to God, who is like you, O Lord? That ought to come out of every one of our mouths every day. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? But what do we know about the people of Israel? This question, while rhetorical, they would walk away from, and they would fall in love with other gods, Baal and other gods, Ashtaroth. And he, he was no longer who is like you, O Lord. He just became one of many gods. And what's interesting is in the book of Revelation, later on, chapter 13, verse 4, here's what the people on earth are going to say. Who is like the beast? They've, they've taken the glory due God, and they're going to give it to the beast. And we'll find out more about the beast. But I'm telling you how easy it is for us to take what belongs to God and give it to someone or something else. And yet, what are, what are we being reminded to do in this passage this morning? Give God what he's due. Worship him. Glorify him. Recognize his honor, his glory, his power. So what I want to do this morning before we get to our questions is we're going to practice what we just saw. And so I've asked Austin to come up and he's going to lead us and we're going to sing holy, holy, holy. I know it's early. I know you don't want to sing, and I really don't care. But you're going to stand up, and we're going to sing holy, holy, holy. And I want you to take the attitude that you're standing before the throne of God with your crown in your hand, and you're placing it at his feet, and you're going to sing and give him what he's doing. Let's sing together, men.
Well, Father, we come to you this morning and we praise you. We give you glory. We give you honor and we acknowledge your power. Father, I pray today as we walk out of this room after the discussion time that we would walk out with a, an encouragement to praise you throughout the day, throughout our lives, that, Father, you're worthy of praise. You're worthy of our attention. Nothing in this world deserves the glory that is yours. Encourage us, Father. Remind us. Show us your power, your glory, and your honor today, even throughout our day. Lord, thank you for this morning, and thank you for these men. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son and our Savior. Amen. You're not free to leave. You do have discussion questions, and they're pretty easy. Y'all sit down. Um, what are some of the things in our lives of which we could say, who is like you but shouldn't? And I hope you understand, if at the, it, during the tribulation, if people are saying, who is like the beast, what are things in your life that you go, man, who is like you? Who is like my car? Who is like my house? Who is like my portfolio? Who? No. What are some of those things? Secondly, what aspects of God's character cause you to praise and worship him? What is it about God that causes you to glory in him? And then finally, the elders cast the crowns given to them by God at his feet. What has God given you that you can use to worship him? This may take some thought. So guys, have at it. Have fun. And we'll see you next week.